Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Mike Perry, and I'm here with Brett Jones coming live from wonderful Pittsburgh. Brett, how's things in the Berg? Fabulous. As uh, Pavel referred to it once, the dark place. Um, I was saying uh, <laughs> in reference to bending nails and some of the strength feats that, uh, you know, you just, you go to a to a dark place to be able to accomplish some of those things. And he's like, Brett, you mean Pittsburgh? I'm like, <laughs> that is that is Pavel's sense of humor. Um, it, exactly. Uh, that, that is him in a nutshell. And you know, Pittsburgh's no more puts, of the the gray place than the, the dark gray. place, but it, it's it still works. Shades shades of gray. Um, anywho, oh, blah, blah. <clears throat> sorry that that got my uh, gag reflex. Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah, you weren't even thinking about that? No, but I now, yeah, I apologize. So, uh, (laughs) okay. Yeah, no, I've never seen that. But uh, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, okay. We'll just skip that. Um, This podcast is not about Fifty Shades of Grey. And we are off on tangents once again. Um, No, today we're going to talk. Today we're going to talk about squatting. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about all things squatting. Um. Uh, movement prerequisites, uh, programming, um, loading, you name it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a fundamental movement pattern. Um, it's something that we do in, in everyday life, um, but it's going to look different in everyday life than it would in the weight room per se. And uh, we need to talk about the differences between squatting the movement pattern and squatting in the weight room. While they do look similar, they have uh, a couple different applications. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about why it's important to maintain your deep squat, um, and, uh, how it can be used as a fantastic strength training tool, a mobility tool, um, and everything in between. So, um, let's, let's start right away with, um, you know, kind of squatting the movement pattern. And, uh, you know, when we learn to squat as a child, um, the majority of kids started in a very, very sort of simple way. They would crawl over to something where they were, that they were interested in, and they uh, would use their upper body and they would generally squat from the bottoms up. So it wouldn't be, <clears throat> pardon me, the eccentric portion of the squat first. It's generally they pull themselves up and 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 to standing. So it would actually be going from a squat to a stand versus from a stand to a squat. And, um, you know, I, I think that tells us a lot about, um, you know, how we should move in general, because I think a lot of people assume that squatting is always this eccentrically heavy based movement. And yes, there is a a significant eccentric load there. And when you're training, you know, going into a deep, deep squat heavy is, is really, really tough. But at the same time, we can build and we can rebuild and repair the squat by actually reverse engineering in it, starting from the bottom up. And, um, that's one of the things I want to start off with because when we're kids, 
we can, every kid can squat and, and there's reasons behind that. We're going to talk about development and, and all the other things that go into it. But, um, we didn't have movement coaches as a kid. We just didn't, um, we just figured it out. And there was the reason why we squatted as a child, it wasn't for exercise purposes. It was for investigation purposes. There was something that we saw and we wanted to go check it out. And while we were there, we were hanging on things. We were, you know, pulling on things and, Oh, we stood up, we probably rocked back and forth to figure out how we could balance our giant noggin over our hips. We fell down a few times and rinse and repeat. And then eventually you start to do this up and down motion. And again, the kid's not exercising, right? The kid's not like, I'm going to do a bunch of squats. What they're doing is they're just investigating and they're, they're actually looking at the environment and learning through movement. And that's why I love the squat, because it's not only one of my favorite exercises in the gym, but it's a fundamental movement pattern that as a child, we develop very, very early on. And we have to use some variation of that squat as we get a little bit older. So a uh, huge fan of it. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those movements that everybody should do in, in some way, shape or form. But um, there are some potential contraindications and and we'll dig into that for a little bit. But um, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand how to teach squats very well for quite some time because there wasn't a lot of quality information on how to access the mobility and and to get into those deep positions and now i've spent several years uh dissecting the squad and 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 uh, digging into it and and i've learned a ton along the way and and i've learned a ton from brett because he's a guy that you know showed me a lot of these things early on in my kettlebell career so um squatting brett have you have you ever squatted before once or twice. Um, well, hopefully at least once to twice a day to uh, get get to the toilet. Um, and uh, an old joke that uh, many, many trainers use because uh, a lot of people will go to the doctor with knee pain or, you know, something like that. And they'll be told not to squat anymore. And it's like, well, uh, you're going to elevate all your toilets because, you know, eventually you're going to need to do that. Um, you're going to want to sit. So you should probably, you know, be able to get to the chair, get in your car. Um, and so, you know, it's an activity of daily living. Um, I'm, I'd like to peel that uh, developmental piece back one layer further and say that uh, when you were uh, going from your initial planking to quadruped and then you were ra uh, rocking as a child, you were doing some squat rehearsal. Uh, in that unloaded position and kind of opening up the mobility in the hips and, and things of that nature. So, you know, it, it really is, you know, uh, this fundamental movement pattern that comes with this. Um, it is a position of investigation where lowering our center of mass to get down to investigate something. Uh, it's a position of work. Sometimes you got to squat down and then do something with your hands and be able to maintain the squat position. Uh, if you look at a variety of athletic activities, that symmetrical stance position is one that you need to be uh, strong with and that you need to be able to use. So it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, uh, just fundamental. You, you got to be able to do it. Quotation marks around that. Gotta. Um, it, it should be accessible to a wide variety of the population. Um you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of senior citizens over the years. And, you know, when you, when you start talking about the squat and getting them stronger, like it, it gets really fundamental. Like I, I don't sit in the couch at so-and-so's house because you sink in and I can't get up out of the couch. I got to have help to get out of the couch. Um, so we're talking about the ability to live independently, the ability to feel confident going out and about, 
uh, just at a very fundamental level. And then from a performance uh, standpoint, you know, that symmetrical stance, the ability to produce power. Um, and maybe later we, we kind of dissect just a little bit of, uh, you know, hinge versus squat sort of uh, conversation, but um, it, it's a, it's where we produce a lot of power and uh, it's where we absorb a lot of force. Um, if we're doing something simple like a vertical leap and you're coming down, you got to be able to, you got to be able to properly absorb that force. And that, that gets into all of our uh, squat mechanics. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, and I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I do not have a barbell and a squat rack at my house because I am a squataholic. And if I had access, steady access to a barbell and, and a power rack, I'd probably still be squatting um, and trying to do so in a, rather heavily. And um, I love it. You know, in reference to bending nails, I tell people that the feeling feeling steel give way to your strength is addictive. Like it's awesome. It is a great feeling to, to know that you're producing enough force to melt this, the steel bar that you've got your hands on. Um, it's with pads. So don't, don't get too impressed. Um, but squatting. Actually, hold on, hold is, on. You've bent a red nail, what? dude. You've bent a red nail. Yeah. Okay. So so first of all, when you say don't be impressed, I'm going to I'm gonna tell Brett to shush right now for one quick second. I, I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> Bending a red nail. I don't think you understand how thick a red nail is. He's one of probably under 50 people uh, that have done this. So I don't know how many now, but when you did it, there, was, there wasn't many, correct? I was number 11 in the world. Okay. okay. So, so Brett is a, a pretty humble dude, but when he was bending nails, he was really damn strong. And if you've ever tried to bend, even, I don't know the colors these days, but even if you were to try to bend <laughs> one of the smaller, thin ones that um, looks like a pencil, like a wooden pencil, and you, you, a lot of people would have hard, a hard time with that. So um, Brett, give yourself some credit because, well, you won't. So I'm going to give you credit. He could bend some pretty cool things and do some cool, cool stuff when it comes to nail bending. So Brett, Brett's a badass. And uh, I'm going to put a link in the bio of this show where it shows him doing some cool stuff. So Brett, you can, uh, you can, you can, uh, take the, uh, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here. You can just take the, uh, the pat on the back and you can move on. Sound good. Thank you, sir. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, but, it, but yeah, feeling still give way to your strength, really addictive, really cool, but loading yourself up with the bar on your back, and, you know, squatting heavy is another one of those, to me, just one of those addictive feelings that I really, really liked. I, I squatted 518 in competition belt only. Um, not, that's not elite. That's not any sort of world-class thing, but it was, you know, at 198, it was one of the better raw squats for that year. And, um, you know, it was, I, I just love it. I just love squatting. Uh, but I also love goblet squats and my kettlebell front squat both single bell and double bell. And so I, I think that there's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something that, um, you know, yeah, I'm a fan. So all of that uh, was said to basically say, I'm a fan of squatting and uh, over the years, helping a lot of people regain their squat. Uh, I think there's definitely some things we can get into here. Yeah, absolutely. So 
<laughs> you know, you, you, we were talking a little bit about development and, and uh, the neurodevelopmental sequence is, is a fantastic tool to understand how we grow and develop. And, and squatting is definitely a part of that. But, you know, Brett had mentioned, you know, getting when, when a baby's in that quadruped position and they're rocking back and forth again, that's that's they're opening their hips up. And they're also just, again, exploring how their body moves in space. And actually, if you want to add in a little extra stuff, they're actually starting to develop their spinal curvature in that position as well. So there's a, there's a lot of benefits from that position, but the, the cool thing is that rocking drill. Um, if you rock and then you push yourself up into the bottom of a squat, you are at the very, very bottom of a deep squat. Now, whether you choose to do that with the heels down or with the toes up, um, it's really, it's really going to depend on, uh, you know, movement competency, uh, overall mobility, hip architecture, that's going to play a big role in it because some people are able to get into a deep squat with their heels down sort of what they call astrograss and some people cannot, and that's okay. But that is a strategy to start working on your mobility is actually to start at the bottom position and, and spend some time there just exploring and then, and then moving on. So that, that's another way that we can look into it. But, um, you know, I want to address the squatting like a baby thing, because uh, I've heard this so many times and, uh, uh, there was that trend. I don't know how many years ago, because I've been doing this a long time, probably six to eight years ago. You should squat like a baby. You should squat like a baby. Um, yeah. Uh, unless you're a baby, that's not going to happen. Um, there are so many changes where, you know, when you're a baby or you're a toddler, there's a bunch of cartilage that isn't bone yet. So you have a lot more, uh, a lot more directions that you can go as far as hip architecture goes, as far as how a lot of the other joints haven't fused yet. So you essentially are this sort of gelatinous bendy material that <laughs> you can get away with a lot more. And then eventually over time, um, you're going to, you know, that's going to, that's going to change over and, and, and turn into bone. But when you're, when you're very, very young, um, you really, you simply don't have the bone structure. Like literally you do not have the same structure around the hip. So, uh, as we get a little bit older, you can't squat like a baby. And then we have to talk about proportions. One of the main reasons why we can squat like a baby is because we have this ginormous head. And if you just envision a toddler being like an orange on top of a toothpick and you're trying to balance it, that's essentially what needs to happen because the size of their head in relationship to the rest of the body is significant. So literally when they're squatting, they're balancing their head over their body. That's what they're doing. And um, if you've ever seen a little one take a fall, they kind of just tip over. <laughs> like there isn't any, like I should put my hands out of brace. They just go boom, and then they get back up and then go from there. But um unless you are very, very, very hypermobile as an adult, or you've had the opportunity to maintain a high level of mobility throughout your entire life and development, you're probably not going to ever have that vertical ass to grass squat. Now, does that mean that we're never going to squat deep? No, it just means if you are looking for that perfectly vertical torso where the shoulders are stacked directly over the hips. Um, it's really, really hard to do. And, and the reason why I say that is because genetics play a role, but practice plays a role. If you're a martial artist and you start at the age of five or six and you, you carry it on through your entire life, your, your anatomy is going to change over time because you're always putting yourself in these positions where your body's going to adapt. So it's basically stress and adaptation. But when it comes to movement competency for adults, it's a little bit different. And this is where um, we hear a lot of things like squatting's bad for your knees or squatting's bad for your back. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to call it like it is. Uh, that's some of the biggest bullshit information that I've ever heard when it comes to knee health and when it comes to hip health. Because um, one of the ways that I have helped a lot of clients with their knees is by teaching them how to squat properly 
in restoring their mobility so they can squat. And that has been far more therapeutic than just avoiding it. 100%. So real quickly on the whole squat like a baby concept, uh, the way I always thought of that was not necessarily that we should look like a baby and squat like a baby. It's that at a certain point in your life, you could squat. Then you reached a point in your life where you couldn't. Well, that is something you gave up. That is something that it was not taken from you unless you had a significant injury or you have some sort of weird structural uh, stuff going on. By weird, I don't mean in that in a negative way. It's just, you know, different. Um, so the the concept of at one point we could all squat, so you sh should still be able to squat now, is what I was going after when I would say things like that. So it's, it's uh, but then pedantic ones out there in the world um, started to draw on this idea that, uh, you know, because of all the the gelatinous uh, bendy materials that you were talking about. Science. Um, science. I love it. Um, you know, it, you can make the argument that uh, toddlers and infants have uh, more bones than we do as adults and, and different structures and 100% true. But even once you started getting past that point into you know being you know past the toddler stage and and the initial squatting stage like you could still squat at one point why can't you do it now the the scientific reason is probably because you don't like that's <laughs> that's, that's, exactly that's, it. Yeah. that's the scientific reason you can't squat is you don't squat um you Funny gave it up works. Over, over the years um you know, I had a quick side story, I ran a hospital uh, wellness center for uh, quite a few years. And one of the health fairs we did was in a uh, elementary school. And I had to get down to the first graders and kindergarten kids before I could find kids that knew how to skip. By the time they had gotten into second, third, fourth grade, they had lost the ability to skip. Uh, that's bad. <laughs> that, that's one of those fundamental things that, uh, you know, when you, when you switch from contralateral, ipsilateral, and you can't coordinate that contralateral pattern, like that has a, that's a big deal. So that was many years ago, cause I am older, uh, than I, uh, think of myself. And, um, I think that, um, that is part and parcel of this. You could do these things as a child you then reached a point where you couldn't, and that is giving something away, not having it taken from you. Movement prerequisites, um, ankle, hip, midsection stability, and believe it or not, T-spine, all play a role. Your body proportions, your anthropometrics uh, are going to, and I can't pronounce that word, so that's the best you're gonna get uh, for, for the pronunciation there. Um, your body structure matters a lot to what's going to happen uh, from a squatting standpoint. Long femur, short torso versus short femur, long torso, though, and just going with two ends of the spectrum to make the the, the delineation easy. Um, those, those two squats are going to look really different. And those two people are going to prefer different squatting styles and exercises because their body proportions and their structure leads them that direction. Now, you don't get to use that as an excuse of why you can't squat. Um, if your ankles are 
if you don't have the requisite ankle mobility and let's just get rid of the general squatting, let's talk squat as a movement pattern, that general squatting, like vertical shins and blah, no, you have ankles, use them. Uh, and that assists your squat in a tremendous uh, way. You need to know how to create space at your hips. You need to maintain a, and I'm quotation marks, I'm an air quotes guy. So everybody at home, just picture me doing air quotes. Uh, you need to maintain a quote level pelvis. Uh, and that has to do with midsection stability and some skill stuff that we'll get into here in just a little bit. But, um, and then actually that T-spine mobility um, and this, this is, I'm going to seg, just add in real quick for the FMS. When we look at the overhead deep squat, the movement screen, we use to look at the symmetrical stance squatting pattern. The only reason the arms are overhead, the only reason the arms are overhead is to see if you have to steal from the upper body in order to complete that lower body motion. Cause there's so many things in life where we need to be doing two things at once. I need to be able to, um, 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 I need to be able to move, uh, through my, uh, through my hips, um, and complete those lower body movements without having to compensate through my, through my upper body. Um, so, you know, we've, uh, in, you know, maybe another podcast, we'll talk more specifically about opening up ankle mobility and, you know, things like that. But those, those are the prerequisites that I, that I look for. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, ankle mobility is a big one. And, you know, I, I've, I've heard a bunch of things, right? I've heard a people, a lot of people say, oh, you know, ankle mobility is the most important thing when it comes to squatting. And I've heard a lot of other people say it's not that important. Um, it's just, you know, trying to find the right center. Um, I've actually heard people say stuff like that and, 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 or just put them on a wedge, right? Have them squat with a wedge. Okay. So let, let's talk about that quickly. Um, I played a lot of soccer growing up, um, and both of my ankles are are absolutely trashed. One uh, was recently repaired, got some some cartilage and some bone spurs taken out about two, two and a half months ago. I'm still trying to restore that range of motion to get my deep squat back because my ankles are still just pretty gunked up and I got a lot of work to do. And uh, my other one at some point is going to need to get repaired as well. And um, squatting has been really hard for me over the last year because my ankles have just been acting up from, uh, you know, years and years of wear and tear. And, and yes, I do train a lot of jujitsu, so that doesn't help the body that much either. Um, but ankle mobility, if you want to squat really, really well, having mobile ankles, specifically an ankle dorsiflexion is very, very important. It just is, um, if you don't, it's going to change your mechanics and then go from there. But, um, you know, can you put people on a wedge? Cool. Yeah. You can get people on a wedge and you can borrow, uh, you know, uh, we can use something for assistant to enable them to squat, but it doesn't mean that they restored their ankle mobility. It just means you've changed their center of gravity and you've, you've started them off biased in a little plantar flexion. So as they descend into the squat, they're not hitting their end range dorsiflexion. So that's why a heel wedge makes a difference. But what happens on all the other things? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to heel wedge everything they do. No, you can't. So at a certain point, if you have the ability to change it, you should do that. And, uh, you know, one of the resources I, I like to talk about when it comes to mechanics and, and how the body should look and anthropometry and the, all the other things that we can talk about when it comes to, uh, you know, how, how the squat should look is Tom Purvis squat and foldability. Um, I will put, uh, that in the, the link because that's probably one of the best examples of, um, you know, how your proportions, 
how your mobility and your anthropometry is going to uh, absolutely reflect how you squat. So that's, that's something that's super, super duper important. Um, so yeah, it's going to look different. And, and that's the other thing. Everybody's squat is going to look a little bit different. You should not try to make your squat look like someone else's squat. So if you see someone that's squatting well, sure, you can emulate maybe the fact that they squat well, but if you try to make your squat look identical to theirs, there's a good chance you're going to end up frustrated and it won't happen because we're all built differently based off of how our nervous system is wired, our, our anatomy, our hip architecture, actually how the bones are formed. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. So just saying that you're going to make your squat look like someone else's is, uh, you know, it's not the best approach, but I think what you should try to do is optimize your own movement competency. So when it is time to load your squat up, you're doing it in a way that is going to always result in a positive adaptation. Absolutely. Uh, get, get the red box out of the way. And, you know, I, I, not to go on too much of a movement screening ramp, but, you know, people, the pendulum has swung from, if you're not assessing or guessing to, I don't do any assessments because I just watch people move, uh, during their exercise. Um, so if you see somebody do something that you would want to improve in their squat, now you have to go back and think, well, is it a movement barrier? Well, just take that off the table first. Just go ahead and, and screen them. And, you know, let's be honest, getting a two on the FMS deep squat is not a high high bar. Uh, but no, you get not. to check the ankles and clear the ankles and look at that midsection stability. So you know that they can control their pelvis or, or at least have the opportunity to learn how to control their pelvis. Um, you're, 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 it's going to clear a lot of things out of the way first. So assuming that you've done all of that and we start entering into the, uh, the squat as an exercise, um, my first stop is always the goblet squat. And it's because you can, the way you have the upper arms connected to the ribs and the way you can get that kettlebell away from you just a few inches as a counterbalance is really going to assist the squat. Sometimes just that little bit of, little bit of counterbalance, a little bit of anterior weight shift, all of a sudden people find, you know, a way, you know, different ability. And you can even use a hinge style. So you start with the kettlebell up in that rack position and you actually perform a hip hinge very quickly for those listening at home. The difference in my mind between a squat and a hinge is in a squat, the dominant movement of your hips is down. In a deadlift, the dominant movement of your hips is back. So if you think about a hinge and pushing your hips back, you're going to push the hips back so that you get the elbows to the knees. Once you have the elbows to the knees, the VMs, and it's the pointy part of the elbow, the electron process on the vastus medialis, teardrop muscle just in above and inside the uh, knee slightly, uh, then you push out with the elbows and drop the hips. So we go from hinge to squat, find that bottom position, do a little prying, little rocking around and prying, let your feet move and adjust. You're probably going to end up with some turnout. We're going to talk lock and rock here in just a minute. Uh, and then you can gather yourself, give a little grunt and power up out of that squat. Again, learning that squat from the bottom up, similar to what you were talking about from a developmental standpoint and kids that used to pull themselves up on something, then stand up. Um, it's that, that hinge to squat, uh, hinge to stand to goblet squat. Um, fresh name. I just named it. Uh, that makes a big difference in, in allowing people to, to explore that bottom position and do the concentric only 
Um, and then you can say, you know, follow that path on the way down, you know, re repeat that, but now follow the path that you had on the way up on the way down. So for me, the goblet squat is step one, uh, getting anybody to change their squat and open their squat. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, and, and that sort of, uh, in one of our other podcasts, we talked about how sometimes accessing a movement is going to go a little bit better with a, with a light load. And, and that's why the goblet squat is, is such an impactful movement because you can gain your mobility for the squat that you need. You can, um, you know, if you've never had it, you can regain it with a, with a prime goblet squat, or you can get really damn strong. So there's, there's a ton of different options, but the goblet squat is actually for, I would say for 95% of the people using the goblet squat is a better choice early on to establish squat mechanics than a body weight squat because of that counterbalance, not to mention the idea of, you know, getting that midsection stability, right. Or, you know, where it allows you to zip up. And if you can zip up that midsection, it's going to kind of free up the lower extremities as well. So, um, the goblet squats money. And, uh, you know, I was first exposed to it early, early on, uh, in, in, you know, the RKC days and, and, and now through strong first, but, um, it's, uh, it's incredible stuff and it can be used for so many damn reasons, right? If, if you want to use it as, you know, a, a loaded mobility day where you start to go real light and you start to weight shift and open up your hips. If you want to go real heavy, you know, squatting with a beast doing 10, you know, a set of 10 goblet squats with a 48 kilo. I don't care who you are. That's going to give you some work. Now, granted, you know, the limiting factors are probably the upper extremities there, but it's still really, really hard. And there's still something to learn from there. So, um, but the goblet squat is, is, is fantastic. And I would actually say that the work of, of Pavel and the stuff that you did with gray is, is probably one of the reasons why a lot of people can squat really well now. Um, you know, Dan, John, uh, you know, was very, very pivotal and, and sort of bringing that to the masses as well with his work with the goblet squat and how we taught it as well. But regardless, um, it was cool to see all of these people regaining their deep squat through the works of some really, really smart coaches. Well, and it's funny because, uh, uh I, I'm, you know, April of 2023, uh, or, you know, this year is 20 years of teaching certifications with Pavel and, um, 21 of being, you know, certified with Pavel. And when we, when I started teaching with him in, in, in 2003, um, we would spend two to three hours at the beginning of a, of a cert, just getting people to be able to break parallel on the squat. Like it was rare to have somebody show up that they, they owned a, a good squat. Uh, now pretty much everybody shows up with a, with a pretty good squat and, and the ability to do it. And that, that just frees up a lot of teaching time and a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of time to work with the students. So um, as, and real quick, because one of the things that people will go to is like a suspension trainer sort of uh, assisted squat where they're leaning back. And this is one, it's fine to start there. But keep in mind that if you let go of those straps, you know where you're going. <laughs> you're going for a right? ride. You're going, you're going for a ride. It's no place you want to go. It's you're going on your bum and there can be some problems there. So while that can be an entry point for some folks, um, you need to be careful with that because, and it's just like we talked with assisted pistols, when you're using that counterbalance of a, of a suspension strap and you get your weight really posterior, there's not a lot of transfer to the actual activity because the center of mass is so different. 
uh, and the, the, the mechanics are, it just changes. So um, another uh, vote there for the goblet squat being the first stop. Um, and don't be afraid to squat to boxes and to uh, grow the squat over time um, using uh, a variety of assistance, uh, both with squatting to boxes, goblet squat, things like that. Once we're ready to load it up, again, and for me, first stop, kettlebell, uh, front squat, whether single bell or double bell. And because of iron cardio and the, the amount of single bell squats that I do, uh, which is can be significant, um, you know, I'm a big fan of that uh, unilateral um, loaded uh, kettlebell front squat. Anti-rotation, um, controlling center of mass. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going on there. And then when you're ready for it, double bell front squat. Um, Donnie Thompson at one point said double 40 kilos. And this was, he was squatting around 1200 at the time, uh, pounds, 1200 pounds for anybody that, uh, that thought I meant 300. Like, how much you bench? Do you bench it? 350 pieces, 350 pieces. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Do you know exactly. what I'm talking? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm, so jerky boys listen we're old but the jerky boys were phenomenal so going back to donnie thompson double 40s on the double kettlebell front squat sorry was he felt was enough for improving his squat um so you know it it it's a different movement the connection of the arms to the rib cage the compression of the breathing musculature the way you have to control your center of mass and open your hips there's a lot of good things happening in that double bell front squat so I'm a huge fan. Now, once you get through all that, if we want to take on the barbell um, and talk high bar versus low bar uh, or zercher uh, squatting, um, you know, that's also, as discussed previously as a squataholic, um, are things that I all love and uh, depending on equipment and goals, get my students doing. Um, but that's, that's my program. Once we get past the movement prerequisites and we got a great goblet squat, that's kind of my progression into, um, loaded, uh, squatting and training the squat as an exercise. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about the double kettlebell front squat right now, because I think out of all the squat variations, I don't want to say out of all of them because we see a lot of butchered squats, but you know, the double kettlebell front squat when performed correctly, and Brett talked about it briefly, but we're going to touch on it again can be one of the most powerful, impactful tools for getting super duper strong because, um, I'm not, listen, I, I can't squat a ton right now. I think the heaviest I've ever done with double kettlebells were maybe 30, double 36s. And I felt like I had a truck on my chest. So, and, uh, but that was, that was, you know, for me, that's, that's about body weight. So it, it is what it is. But, um, if you are training with kettlebells and you have an eventual goal of, stacking other movements on top of a squat pattern, like a push press, like a long press, um, double kettlebell jerks, um, having the ability to own the double kettlebell front squat and doing real, doing a really nice job of that is going to be huge. And I think one of the biggest issues we see is people, you know, they clean the bells and then the second they descend into their squat, their elbows fly up and their, their tricep comes off of their ridge cage, their rib cage. And they're essentially resting it on the top of their shoulders at this point. Um, they lose that sort of lat connection. Um, they lose the stability and the stiffness through their trunk. Um, and uh, they lose a lot of their tension. And I think one of the reasons why is one, I think um, ego, it's just really hard. 
like to do a heavy double kettlebell front squat deep and, and keep your elbows as tight to your ribs as possible is really, really hard. And if you want to talk about some of the best quote unquote core training in the world, a heavy double kettlebell front squat will teach you a lot about stiffness and creating, you know, intra-abdominal pressure because it, it feels like someone's parking a car in your chest. Um, but, um, again, if you do want to get to the point where you're going to be doing, uh, you know, push presses or double kettlebell jerks or clean and jerks, and, and I'm not talking about GS cause it's a, it's a very, very different conversation. GS is more competition based, more strength endurance versus more strength biased. Um, we're not talking about a ton of efficiency because you're not going to be doing a ton of reps, but having the ability to, you know, even if you do a quarter squat and you can do that quarter squat where you've cleaned the bells, elbows are on the ribs, you dip down and you're centered and you're, you're really ready to sort of be in that launch position. That position alone is going to be super important to nail down because if you are trying to get those kettlebells overhead, as you come on up and explode out of the, the hole, quote unquote, the hole, which is, you know, in a quarter squat, it's a, it's a very short dip you need to be able to keep that stiffness and that rigidity in your trunk. So you have a nice platform to launch those kettlebells overhead because when you push the kettlebells overhead, your legs and your torso, you're driving force into the ground, you're taking that force and you are essentially, you know, loading your entire body like a spring. And then you're expressing the load into the overhead position. And if you can't maintain a nice, quote unquote level pelvis and a, a nice balanced rib cage over that level pelvis, you're going to be, uh, you're going to have leaks in your energy, right? And when that happens, you're not as strong. So, uh, elbows on the ribs on those double kettlebell front squats. Um, we could probably do a whole nother podcast on that as well, because, you know, again, mechanics, mobility, anthropometry all play a role, but you can spend a ton of time. And I honestly believe that if you get really good at double kettlebell front squats and you don't shy away from how hard they are, meaning you know, when it's to the point of going heavy and going below parallel, don't be a baby, you know, stick to your guns. You're going to get super duper strong. And and I would argue you may not need any other squat variation after that. I think for a lot of people, it checks all the boxes, uh, real quick on keeping the, uh, elbows or the arms connected to the ribs. Uh, this is a squat concept or perception that people have. And one of the ways that, that we see people frequently initiate their squat is actually to drop the pelvis, kind of go into an arched lower back, drop the pelvis sort of position and try to sit back into their hips. Um, that sets up a really bad chain of events mm -hmm. because when you drop the pelvis into an anterior tilt, you're actually stealing a lot of hip mobility from yourself. Because now you're dropping the acetabulum forward on the femur and, and stealing some range of motion there. And then when you try to sit back, um, well, the only way you can do that and not have either the bells fall out of the rack and, <laughs> and fall on the ground or you fall on your face is to project those elbows away and raise mm -hmm. those elbows. Um, now, if we were talking barbell front squats, we're talking about a completely different thing. Kettlebell front squat keep that connection. And you do not want to initiate the squat by dropping your pelvis. You want to initiate the squat by opening your hips. And literally, uh, you can think about it. There's so many different cues here, um, but you want to create space. And, and you, you can go on Instagram and look at my squatting videos, uh, both double bell and single bell, and you'll notice how narrow my stance is. When I say open your hips, what most people hear is 
take my stance wider. And that's not what I said. I said, open your hips. But you go to Instagram, you look at my squats, you'll see a very narrow stance, but you'll see very open hips. Um, I got square pegs and round holes. Uh, my, my femoral head does not change shape when it should. I have a 62 degree alpha angle on the right, about 58 on the left. Uh, anything above like 42 degrees is clinically significant. So I've got some pretty funky uh, femurs. Um, anterior, uh, my right labrum is completely torn. Anterior labrum is completely torn. Anterior superior labrum is torn with some paralabral cyst. Uh, so for me, uh, maintaining my squat is really important, but I do it because I know how to create space at my hips. I know how to avoid the square pegs and the round holes and yet still squat very deep with a, with a level pelvis with a stable low back. Because if your hip stops, your back starts. Your body will want to cover the range of motion. It doesn't, you know, you don't run out of range of motion at your hip and the little, you know, red light goes off in your brain and the 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 message is, oh dear, we've run out of room at the hip, so we should stop squatting now. No, the body just goes, oh, we can't get any more motion from there. We'll get it from there. And that's usually the back. Bad trade-off, really bad trade-off. So the lock and rock drill. Uh, years ago, I came up with this. I've used it with a lot of different people to change their squats and their hinges, uh, kettlebell swings, etc. And it involves individualizing the foot position so that you optimize the hip to spare the back. If you force yourself into a particular foot position, let's say feet straight ahead, and that isn't the right position for you, you will run out of room at the hip. You will move from your back or impinge your hip. Um, and I learned this the hard way and ended up on my doc's table where he's looking at me like, dude, you look like my 80-year-old clients that are ready for a hip replacement. What have what you been doing? Well, I've been trying to do stuff to my feet straight ahead uh, <laughs> with my square pegs and in the round hole. So I needed to adjust my stance to fit me. Um, you can look up articles on strongfirst.com or functionalmovement.com. And, you know, I talk about the lock and rock and, and how to do that. Uh, but individualizing that foot position and coming back to the prying goblet squat, letting your feet adjust and move and not trying to take your stance super wide. There's an old saying in powerlifting, you can squat wide or you can squat deep. You can't squat wide and deep. Um, so we choose uh, we choose deep. So my stance is pretty narrow and I create space through my hips. Bingo, bango solves a lot of problems. Absolutely. And, um, the goal when you're squatting for yourself, if you're, you're, you know, you're just training yourself is to optimize your squat. And that takes time. That just takes a little bit of time and, and exploration. When I say that, um, be willing to just spend a little bit of time and struggling through these movements and learning about what your body can and can't do and, and feeling where those restrictions are and, 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 and just spending a little bit of time with yourself, because I think people just assume they can just jump into something, but the more that you spend time on learning these movements, the more you can understand what your body needs. So there's this process that I, I, I want people to struggle 
not, not, not in a bad way, but I want them to struggle because they're going to learn through that process of how their body responds to different positions, um, different mobility drills, et cetera. So, um, I, I think, you know, when you're trying to optimize yourself, I, I think that's hugely important. And when you're working with your clients, that's why we do assessments, right? That's why we, 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 we run people through an evaluation, what, whatever you decide to use. And then it's a little bit of range finding, trying to determine what's a good starting point for strength training and then, and then going from there. And I think, um, you know, one of the last things I want to talk about just quickly is, you know, teaching the squat in a one-on-one -on -one setting versus in a setting where you're working with groups, because like anything, um, the way that you set up the environment and the application is, is very, very important. And I'm gonna tell you this, um, especially if you're working, if you're working with actually adults and even young athletes, um, having them squat and tap their butt to a box or a ball that's slightly below parallel to start off with is one of the easiest ways to replicate the squat over and over again. So the reps look similar, um, because they don't, a lot of people don't know what the bottom of their squat is. So what you can do is, you know, get a bunch of boxes and teach them about lightly tapping to the box and then coming up. And eventually it's kind of like training wheels, right? I mean, when you start with the bike, you start with training wheels and the whole purpose of the training wheels is to teach you how to ride that bike. And then what do you do with the training wheels? You actually bring the training wheels up. So they're not on the ground the entire time. So you learn how to balance yourself. What's well, kind of like the same thing with squatting, um, teaching people how to squat to a box, super, super important. Um, it's repeatable. It gives them an end range and then you can go from there. Now, do you have to take that box away? No, you could have people squat to a box for the rest of their lives. Who cares? Um, I think you're going to get a greater benefit if you're going below parallel with, with good joint alignment and a nice tall spine. I think you're going to get a, a significant benefit on how certain muscles fire and sequencing and all that other stuff. But, um, if you want to tap to a box for the rest of your life with your squat, who cares if you decide to not, who cares? The only time where it really, really matters is in, in the world of powerlifting, right? I mean, you have to squat below parallel to achieve a score. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why depth is important now from an, again, from an anatomy standpoint, there are some cool things that happen as you go below parallel, but, um, you know, that's for another conversation, but, um, you know, as we sort of wrap this up, um, squatting is, is, is incredibly important. Um, spend a little bit of time there. And, and I would, I would say that, um, if you can maintain your deep squat for the duration of your life, I think the quality of your life will be vastly improved. And, and I honestly believe that, um, anytime I've spent a lot of time on my squat and with my clients, they're like, man, everything just feels better. Like, well, yeah, cause it is better. So, um, Brett, any words of wisdom as we wrap this one up, my friend? Uh, well, uh, and this is for another podcast. Um, if you're going to take on, uh, high bar versus low bar versus ultra squat, get some coaching. Yeah. Those are three very different patterns. Those uh, those fit different body shapes and styles. And, you know, there are some generic recommendations out there where, you know, when we say everyone should squat, doesn't mean everybody needs to, you know, put do a low bar back squat or a high bar back squat. You know, sometimes a goblet squat is the only squat somebody needs. Sometimes it's got a bow front squat, checks all the boxes. So um, before you before you get too excited, uh, get some coaching, make, make sure you understand the thing that you're, you're trying to do. It's not as simple as throw the bar on your back and squat and, um, you know, pay attention to your body. Um, try the lock and rock, adjust your stance, but, uh, happy squatting. You don't know squat, Brett. 
Exactly. Come on. I'm, that was, a, I'm okay with that. That was a, that was a good one. Um, <laughs> that was a good one. Anyways. Uh, thank you all for listening. We truly appreciate it. And it is March. March is colorectal cancer awareness month. Um, I'm going to end every podcast with this. Um, you know, as someone who's been diagnosed with, uh, with colon cancer and I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer a couple of years ago. Um, this is very near and dear to my heart. Um, do us a favor. Uh, if you need support or you want to get uh, more information, one of the groups that I teamed up with early on was the colorectal cancer Alliance. Um, you can find them online. Um, you can find them on Instagram. They have a lot of great resources on colon cancer and, uh, listen, something's going on in your body. You're not feeling right. If you're, uh, you know, if you have any, uh, family members that have had colon cancer, do me a favor, go and and get a colonoscopy and get checked. Very, very important. Um, literally it could save your life. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to share my story and, uh, through me, through, uh, sharing my story, I've been fortunate enough to help people uh, get a little bit more education. And a lot of people went and got colonoscopies and they said, Hey man, like they found some polyps and they found some stuff and, and now we're ahead of it. So do yourself a favor, go see your doctor, get a colonoscopy, be smart. Um, you only get one body, try to take care of it. And, uh, you know, pay attention, pay attention to your body in general, not just squatting, but, um, you know, it's very important to, to get those age appropriate tests and, and, and take care of everything. But, um, you know, this is it for today. Uh, we appreciate it guys. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, do us a huge favor and give us a positive review on whatever platform that you're listening to share with your friends, colleagues, loved ones, et cetera. And we'll see you on the next episode. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.